What a joy, what a joy, and I'm glad it was Stephen who got the pie in the face this year and not me. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Our second missionary journey takes us to Thessalonica and Berea this morning. The series is called Let's Go Change the World, and this is the very passage where we kind of get the, the theme for this entire study. This is the place where the apostles were accused of turning the whole world upside down. Now, it is 4th of July weekend, as maybe last night you could tell. Anybody else take your uh, dogs out for a walk last night? And the fireworks were going off. Um, what, what a uh, celebratory time in our nation, right? I've got a picture here of the Battle of Yorktown Surrender, the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Yorktown Town Surrender, and this is an uh, awesome uh, depiction of what happened to end the Revolutionary War. It's cool because you've got General Washington over to the side. He's not accepting the surrender because Cornwallis was too chicken to come out and surrender himself. And so this is what it looked like when the surrender happened. And according to the reports of that day, when they surrendered, the British army played the song, The World Turned Upside Down. The World Turned Upside Down as they marched away in total defeat. I love that thought that something so revolutionary is happening that the only way to describe it is the world is turned upside down. That's what was happening in the Roman Empire and people in Thessalonica knew it. Something is changing, and it's huge. I would love for it to be said in our day. I would love for it to be said in our city. These people are turning the world upside down. Lord, let it be. Let it be. Let it be. We're going to see today the power of the gospel through bold witnesses, and we're going to learn that if we go and proclaim Jesus, oh, there's going to be big trouble, but there's going to be awesome provision for salvation as well. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word together. Jesus, we pray that as the gospel goes forth in power, just as it turned the mighty Roman Empire up on its head, we pray that you would also accomplish great things in our city, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. May people realize that everything is changing because in the spiritual realm, thy kingdom is coming, thy will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted in this place through the preaching of your word. And we pray as we open our hearts up to you, you would show us how to be bold witnesses who carry around the name of Jesus everywhere we go. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts 17. Here's a map of the second missionary journey. We'll put that up on the screen. The map shows you their travels. So they started way out east in Jerusalem, went up through Tarsus, then the first missionary journey, cities like Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. Then they were forbidden to go into these cities in Asia, like the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. You've got Philadelphia, Sardis, Smyrna, Ephesus. Ephesus is going to become a base of church planting operations. Why would God give them 400 miles of no? Well, you can see that God in his spirit was encircling this region so that it would actually become a more concentrated place of outreach. But off they went passed there into Philippi last week where the earthquake shook the jail. The jailer got saved. Lydia got saved. The slave girl got saved. 
And now they're going to make their way over to Thessalonica, Berea, and then eventually down to Athens, Corinth, and then, and then back home. But here we are arriving in Thessalonica. And it says in Acts 17, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This is his pattern. It says that he went as his custom in verse 2, into the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Since these were Jewish people or converts to Judaism, they had the scriptures of the Old Testament. And Jesus told his disciples, all these scriptures speak of me. Um, And so I I brought with me here, uh, somebody went to a a place, a synagogue, and they, they brought back this like commemorative scroll. And they gave it to me, which was really cool. And this, this could have very well been, whoop, I just broke it. <laughs> One of the handles fell off. But this very well could have been similar to what was happening. They reasoned from the scriptures. They would go into the synagogue. They would call for a scroll. And then they would open the scroll up. And, and may, you know, maybe it would be Isaiah. Maybe it would be the Psalms, whatever it was. Then the attendant would open the scroll up and then, and then bring it to the person who was teaching. They would unroll it. And then they would reason from the scriptures. So this is what they were pulling out to show Jesus is the Messiah. Isaiah shows it. The Psalms show it. Moses talked about it. So they were reasoning from the scriptures to show that Jesus is the Messiah. You can see how God in his wisdom got the Jewish nation ready to perceive that Jesus is the Christ and to be ready to go run tell the world that he's here, he's here. Well, most of them didn't, but some of them like Paul did. So he went in three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures. Look at the words that are used here. It says in verse 2, reasoned with them. Verse 3, explaining, proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise. There was teaching going on. If you dig into the Greek of these words, there's, a, there's an opening up of the scripture. There's a dis- discourse, a discussion, and there's a laying side by side Look, this is what the Old Testament said. This is what Jesus did. Here's where he was born. Here's when he was born. Here's how he died. Do you see it? Do you see it? He is the Messiah. So the Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. Write that down if you haven't already. That's number one. The Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. He's doing this in a synagogue of Thessalonica, which is a capital city in the region, huge city. And they've traveled 100 miles from Philippi. And here he is in this city doing the same thing that he does. He's not drumming up, you know what, we need some new tricks. You know, we've run into some trouble. We need a new act. Nope, he's doing the same thing. What courage, what boldness to open up the scriptures and proclaim the name of Jesus after they got thrown in jail and almost killed. And I love how he's taking his time reasoning with them, explaining it, proving it, proclaiming it, persuading them. This pattern of going to the Jew first was God's will and his wisdom. They were supposed to easily see that Jesus is the one and go and tell everybody about it. 
They were aware of the Old Testament. So this is a good question for us. Can we use the Bible, the Old Testament even, to show that Jesus is the Messiah? Are you confident and capable to open up this book and to say, look, I can show you how Jesus is the Messiah? That's the pattern we're seeing here of, of how they reasoned with people to show who Jesus was. Are you able to do that? To show how he fulfilled thousands of years of prophecies and his death and his resurrection? How he is our only hope? When I was a youth pastor, I was driving one day with a kid who had been in my youth group for a long time, and he'd been in church his whole life. I think his name was Nick. And we were talking about this and that, and he said, Pastor Ryan, I've been in church my whole life. I already know all this stuff. He was being a little cocky. And so I had my Bible right there, and I handed it to him, and I said, okay, hotshot, here's the Bible. I'm not a Christian. Lead me to faith in Jesus Christ. And he looked at it, and he looked at me, and he looked at it like I just handed him a Rubik's Cube. And he said, I don't know how to do that. I said, well, maybe you still have a lot to learn. Can you do that? If we were to sit down at coffee at Panera, and I handed you a Bible and said, get ready, because I'm about to light you up. I don't have to be nice, because I'm going to play the role of the non-Christian. Lead me to faith in Christ. Could you do it? Do you know how to do it? Do you know how to use this book? A lot of Christians are not confident in their ability to share their faith with others. Thankfully, you can grow in that. The Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. Jot this down. Do you firmly believe Jesus is the promised Savior? This is a question you can ask someone. Hey, do you firmly believe Jesus is the promised Savior? No, and don't bring it up ever again. Or maybe they'll be like, I don't know. My life is all falling apart. Maybe there's something to this. He reasoned with them, and he proved that it was necessary for the, verse 3, the Christ, the Christ. That, that's a word describing a promised Old Testament ruler, an anointed one, the one who would reign forever and ever. How could it be then that he would suffer and die and then rise from the dead? Do you firmly believe Jesus is the promised Savior? God has a plan. I hope you know that it's not like, well, Abraham was plan A, that didn't work. Well, actually, Adam was plan A, and that failed. And so Noah was plan B, that didn't scare him enough. And so plan C was Abraham, and then, you know, plan, then we got to David. And finally, Jesus is like plan W. I hope you don't think that way. Jesus is plan A to Z. He's the Alpha and the Omega. From the beginning, before time began, God's plan was his son, Jesus Christ. I hope you know there is a plan... There is a plan. The plan is a person. The person is Jesus. That's seen throughout the Old Testament. Do you firmly believe Jesus is the promised Savior? In Acts 3, 18 to 24, I'm going to read this to you. It says this, But when God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people." And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him 
also proclaimed these days. This sermon in Acts shows that the Old Testament led up to the days of Jesus Christ, foretold it, foreshadowed it, uh, uh, literally predicted specific things. So therefore, we can understand that Jesus is the promised Savior. So the question I have for you and the question you can have for someone else as you strive to share your faith is this. Do you believe firmly that Jesus is the promised Savior? And let's just say that if you don't think you need a Savior, if you don't think you need somebody to pick you up and, and save your soul, you're denying the, the entire Old Testament's purpose. Everything God has been saying for thousands of years about what you need, you're like, nah, I'm okay. The Scripture says you're not. The Holy Word of God says you need a Savior. Write this down. Do you believe that He died for our sins? The Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Savior who died for our sins. Do you believe that? This was unthinkable to the Jewish people. They wanted the king to come and kick Rome out. Get all those centurions out of my country. I'd be happy to give you the throne then. Unite the kingdom again. That's what they expected of their Savior so when Jesus wouldn't do that, when he wouldn't overthrow Rome, when he came to establish a spiritual kingdom, whatever that is, they crucified him. They didn't want that. Do you remember what it was, what it was written uh, over the cross of Jesus? Do you remember what Pilate put over that? What did it say? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. They were like, can, can you change that a little? He's, he said he was there, but he's, he's like, what I've written, I've written. King of the Jews. Do you firmly believe he's the, he's the Savior who died for our sins? Here's a picture of the cross. Jesus had to die on the cross. This is one movie's rendition of, of it. But he, he suffered and he died. Do you believe that what was happening there on the cross was the Savior of the world was dying in your place to take away your sins? Paul was showing them from the Old Testament that this Messiah had to suffer, had to die. And in Isaiah 53, 5, hundreds of years before Christ, here's what Isaiah wrote of the Messiah. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you see how someone who's like, the Messiah's going to come, he's going he's gonna to kick Rome out, and he's going to reign, period. Well, uh, it sounds in Isaiah 53, 5 like he gets beaten bloody. How about Isaiah 53, 9 to 12? And they made his grave with the wicked. Grave? He's a dead man? And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How can this be? 
he's a dead man, he's in a grave, he's given a reward, and he forgives uh, all these people of their sins. I don't get it. And Paul comes along with the scroll, and he tells the story of how Jesus lived the perfect life. He was rejected anyway, died on the cross, thrown in the grave, risen on the third day. It's him! And a lot of these people who were listening were like, aha! Oh, he's, he's the king of heaven and earth, so of course he's in heaven. He's the king of heaven and earth, so of course he's in heaven. It was all clicking. This is the Old Testament I'm sharing with you. Do you believe that he died for our sins? You must answer this question, and you can ask other people to answer it too. Hey, do you think Jesus died for our sins? And here's the next one. Do you believe he rose on the third day in glory? Do you believe Jesus rose on the third day in glory? Do you know in the Old Testament, nobody ever rose from the grave never to die again? Oh, there were a couple of people who rose from the grave. But guess what? Their family eventually had to figure out how to pay for two funerals because they died again. Only a couple people, right? Elijah, Enoch, Enoch, they escaped death altogether. They went up, all right? So they didn't even have to pay for one funeral. But, but they didn't die and rise again, never to die again. It had never, ever, ever happened until Jesus died and rose again, never to die again. Even poor Lazarus came back for an encore, right? Right? And then what? And then what? Probably couldn't get any, any uh, life insurance after that, you know, like to apply for a, a policy, okay? Uh, why does it say here you're deceased? Well, I was, but I'm back. It's a long story. We're not covering you. <laughs> Jesus is the only one to die, to rise again, never to die again. Do you believe that? Do you believe he rose on the third day in glory? He escaped death. And do you realize that this fulfills Old Testament scripture? It says in Psalm 22, 16 to 18, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This is a thousand years before Christ. Do you hear the detail? They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 16.10 for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. David wrote that, but how could David write that? It sounds like someone's getting out of their grave. David's still in his grave. Jesus would ask, who's he speaking about? And it was him. So the first thing is this. The Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. Do you firmly believe he's the Savior and he died for our sins and he rose on the third day in glory? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Here's a picture of the tomb, the empty tomb, or one artist's rendition of it, the empty tomb. Do you believe Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death? This is the gospel. And Paul was showing it to them from the Old Testament, saying the Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. Do you believe it? If you believe it, you can be saved. If you believe it, you can be saved. All right, well, how did they react? Well, it says here in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. We're in! As did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. 
I love the picture of the church here. Jews who saw it, oh, we're in. Greeks, yes, this is true, this Jewish. This is not a Jewish cult. They actually are telling us about the Messiah. Prominent, rich, powerful, leading women, we're in. The church is made up here of people who've got a lot to lose, people who have a cultural background that is not going not gonna, to mix well when they show up talking about this crucified Jewish criminal who claimed to be the king of heaven, all right? You've got the upper class, the lower class. You've got Jew, Greek. You've got some Romans in here. And this is the beauty of the church and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were saved and they became a spiritual community together. And then what happens? Well, then it said in verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Remember in middle school when people were really jealous of everybody? Oh, it still happens today with grown-ups. They just express it differently. But, you know, someone else has shoes you don't. You know, he likes her and not you. You got a better grade. You're smarter, prettier, funnier. And someone else is just jealous. Jealous. Just cross your arms like this for a second. Just go like this. Just go like this. And then give somebody a nasty look. Just look to the person next to you and just be like, Ugh. the permission in church to give someone a nasty look. The Bible is really honest about what it is that fuels the antagonism of the people who don't believe. They didn't look in the Old Testament and say, you know what? I'm finding a lot of verses here that contradict what you're saying. What they did is this. Mm, now they like you and not me. <laughs> it's the jealousy. It's all Satan needs. Jealousy, by the way, is what drove Jesus to the cross. The rulers couldn't stand the attention he was getting. Jealousy is not a minor league sin. Do you realize that one of the things that might hinder your gospel witness to other people is how people don't like the way you're being treated because of your faith? Jealousy takes three. You're being treated a certain way because you're so Mr. Perfect. And they won't listen to you because they're jealous. It's a huge impediment to the gospel. That might be the impediment in your heart right now. Maybe you're not saved and you're not a Christian because you can't stand the way some people have been treated better than you. You'd be sad to go to hell for jealousy. Jot this down, number two. Do you boldly believe Jesus is king of kings? Do you boldly believe Jesus is king of kings? Some believed, some didn't. Do you believe? The Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. So now they're going to the crowd. Ruffians. Some wicked men of the rabble. Do you know, do you know wicked men? Do you know people who'd be up for doing dirty stuff? Hey, let's go cause trouble. Let's go cause chaos. Sure. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It's a riot. You see in France what's going on right now. Riots. That's what they're starting. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. I love this verse. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I love that this is happening. They're right. These men are turning the world upside down. The power of the gospel. But they're out of control. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Okay, so do you boldly believe Jesus is the King of Kings? Uh, if, if you do, there are going to be people who are against you. What happened here was they arrested Jason and some of the others, um, and they realized that these weren't the ringleaders. And so what they did, big city, big city, okay, the officials know what they're doing. And so what they did was they took him in, and likely what happened was, all right, you're going to post bond, we're going to let you go. Uh, you're going to make sure this problem goes away. If you don't make sure this problem goes away, you're a dead man. Okay, that's likely what happened. So then they got out. They told Paul and the apostles, look, if you don't leave, they're coming for us. That motivated Paul and the apostles to leave. And when he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, he said, I wish I could come back to you, but I can't. Now, it doesn't make sense. He's come back to all the other cities. He went to the city where they literally tried to kill him, and he went back into that city. Why couldn't he go back into Thessalonica? This is probably why. It's because if he went in, other people would get hurt. That's kind of the only way we can understand this. Well, it worked. They had to send him out of there. But what a price they paid. Do you boldly believe Jesus is King of Kings? Write this down. Are you willing to speak up and share the good news? Are you willing to speak up and share the good news? They spoke up. They shared the good news. And it resulted in a citywide uproar. Paul, th these charges... These charges were serious. They said they're acting in verse 7 against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, these are false accusations, but they have some truth to them. So Christians are told in the New Testament to pray for the authorities, submit to them, live peaceful, quiet lives, support the governing authorities. This is what Christians were taught to do. They were not taught city by city to go into an uproar and set things on fire and grab your pitchforks and go kill people. Okay, Peter pulled out the sword and Jesus said, put away your sword. This would not be a violent uh, advancement of the kingdom. So it was false to accuse the Christians of staging this revolution. Okay, It's hypocritical for the people who are starting a citywide mob uproar with, with uh, scoundrels to say Christians are doing this. They're just creating chaos all over the empire. It's an uproar. No, no, you're, you're the one doing that. <laughs> you're doing that. They're not. I think the rulers perceived that too, which is why they didn't even beat Jason and they knew what was going on. So are you willing to speak up and share the good news no matter how it's perceived? In 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul wrote to this city. He said this, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. He later heard that they kept talking. They kept telling everyone. They reached out to the other cities in the region. People started telling Paul, oh yeah, I heard from the, the Thessalonians. Oh yeah, they, they won't stop. They won't shut up about this whole thing. They keep talking and talking and talking. And Paul heard that, and he wrote to them, and he said, everyone has heard about your faith in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Has everyone heard about your faith in Jesus? I always get concerned when I know some family, people in our church, and I'll say, you know, how you guys doing? And somebody will say to me, you know, I don't even know if my dad's saved. Now, dad thinks he's saved, but if your closest family members are like, hmm, then you're doing something wrong. You're, you're not 
speaking about it. You're not giving assurance. Maybe you are saved, maybe you're not. But let's face it, if your own family doesn't know if you're saved, then there could be a problem with you not speaking up about your faith. Or maybe you're not saved to begin with, if even if your family doubts it. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he said, we came to town, we got beaten up in Philippi, we came to town, and we spoke the truth to you. Are you willing to share the good news? Write this down, are you willing to stand firm and suffer? Are you willing to stand firm and suffer? This is just dirty. They grabbed, in verse 5, wicked men of the rabble. They didn't grab the the Bible scholars. Okay, experts in the Old Testament, we're going to go show them they're wrong. They They grabbed those guys who would be up for anything like this. Formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. So are you willing to stand firm and suffer, even if people react poorly, to be insulted and falsely accused, to be slandered for your faith? Are you willing to be maligned and misrepresented? Are you willing for that? Are you willing to endure that? They actually were right. The kingdom-building efforts of the Church of Jesus Christ were absolutely a threat to the social and spiritual order of their day. They were spot on. These men were turning the world upside down. The kingdom of Christ was coming. And if you know your Old Testament, Daniel, this rock that's coming through is going to demolish every other earthly kingdom and only Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Every kingdom on earth, including our wonderful U.S. of A., which we have our own sin as well, every kingdom on earth has an expiration date. Every one of them. So they were absolutely right. This kingdom, this king that they're proclaiming is threatening our nation. Yes, you're right. Are you willing to stand firm and suffer? To understand that when you boldly believe in Jesus Christ, you do become a threat to the social and spiritual order of those all around you. They're right. You are threatening their livelihood because you're telling them there's another king besides themselves that needs to sit on the throne of their heart. Jot this down. Are you ready to turn the world upside down? So knowing that, knowing that, that that's what's going to happen, is that what you are in for? So when it comes to what we're going for here, we are telling the world that there's another King Jesus, a King of Kings who's the rightful ruler of their life. Here's a picture of King George. We'll go back to a 4th of July illustration here. And when it came to the American Revolution, let's just face it, we said no to that. Am I right? We're like, nope, we're out. I mean, get that out of here. We tore down a statue of King George that was in the colonies. We threw it in the fire. We melted it down, made musket balls out of it, and fired it back at the Redcoats. That's how we feel about King, right? So we said no to that. So when we start walking around telling people, Jesus is the king of your life, right? Uh, we're not too good with the idea of having a king. We've got a big problem with kings telling us what to do. But that's our message. Jesus is king of kings. 
He's the rightful ruler of creation, your life, and all of eternity. Heaven is his, not yours. Sometimes when people talk about heaven, you know, they talk about it like they get their own personal paradise. Like you go to Lowe's and you go up to your kitchen designer and you get to put your dishwasher here and your sink here and it's your own little design. Heaven is not your designer paradise. It's his, not yours. You are a guest at the banquet in his honor. Is that what you're looking forward to? To being the guest of the only king who will reign in glory for eternity. Are you ready to turn the world upside down by telling people that? That? It really does take everyday effort. It's not like we have to go to Chicago and start lighting cars on fire and tell people that they need to repent or they're going to burn forever. It's the little things that people do that will spread this message of the gospel all over the world. There are a lot of people in our church who have said yes recently to getting out there, to spreading the good news of Jesus. Here's a picture of some of our recent initiatives. We had some people go out to the Hickory Hill Street Fair, set up a booth, hand out some information about the church, some gospel tracts. There were actually at the Hickory Hill Street Fair, there were also Muslims there with the tents that was set up, handing out copies of the Koran. Other faiths are not idle. There's competition out there for the hearts of people trying to tell them, what way they should follow to get to God. So we have to get out there too. Other people went to the Orland Summerfest and handed out tracts and handed out invitations to our vacation Bible school. Some people are going to be in the Palos Parade, 4th of July, a couple days in Palos Heights. Hey, these things, these little things are the way that we get the light out there. We tell people about the King of Kings. So I'd love for you to say yes to getting out there and to telling other people the great news of Jesus Christ, however you can do it. Number one, the Old Testament proves Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, do you boldly believe Jesus is the King of Kings? Number three, let's go to Berea now. It is noble to examine the truth about Christ. So they, they let them go, and then in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. This is a smaller town, 50 miles southwest of Thessalonica. And they left by night so as to not cause any more public disturbances. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, those Jews, these Jews, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. That's so cool. It says here that it is a noble thing in verse 11. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received it eagerly and examined it daily. Do you see here that the Bible welcomes people who have sincere questions about whether or not faith in Jesus is true? Well, I've got some questions. Great. Are you eager to discuss them? Yes. Are you opening to see in the Bible what the answers are to your questions? Yes. The Bible calls that noble. Well, I've got some big problems with this whole religion thing. Are you willing to sit down and talk about it? No. Can I show you in the Bible how it's true? Never. All right, that's a problem. Because now you are closed-fisted, high-handed rebellion against the possibility that there is even truth in there. It's a noble thing to examine the truth about Christ. 
Do you know the Bible welcomes your questions and wants you to be reasonable, thoughtful, rational, serious in your study of the Bible? Do you know that that's applauded? Do you know God wants you to love him with all your mind? You don't just turn your brain off. Well, fine, I guess I have to believe it all, even though there's talking animals in the Bible. No, it's not that you have to shut your brain off. You are welcomed, invited to bring a reasonable, thoughtful, rational investigation of what the Bible says. Write this down. The Bible is God's word, our heavenly source of truth. Therefore, it can withstand your questions and objections if you give it a chance. It's called the word, the word, the word of God. And therefore, it is our heavenly source of truth. The scriptures are breathed out by God. That's why it's called the word of God. Are you open to learn the Bible? Are you open to the idea that the nature of truth is that it is over you and you are under it? If it comes from heaven, you have to actually surrender and submit to that truth. Are you open to the reality that maybe you don't get to just build a bear your own truth? You know, you actually have to hear it from on high and submit and surrender to it. Doesn't that make more sense than anyone can believe anything their heart desires? So the Bible is God's word, our heavenly source of truth. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul wrote, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your believers. It is the word of God. Write this down. The Bible commends those who investigate its claims. The Bible welcomes our doubts. So church is a place for you to bring your questions. We've uh, frequently done a series is called apologetic sermons where I defend something. So one week I got up and I preached a whole sermon on how the Bible is God's word. And then the next week I got up and I said, now I'm going to preach a sermon on why you can't trust the Bible. Maybe you were here for that. The whole sermon was me laying out the case, the best case people make, for why the Bible is not trustworthy. And point by point, I said, here's how people are going to attack our book. And point by point, I said, here's how you can defend the Bible. That's called an apologetic series where we learn to answer questions. Then at the end, we did a Q&A. We threw the mic out into the audience, and anyone could ask any question about the faith. Because I want you and your children and your grandchildren to know church is a place where you can get answers to your questions. The Bereans show us this. This is a noble thing they're doing, eagerly examining the scriptures. It's okay if you feel like, I got a lot of questions, but it's not okay if you shut down and you say, therefore I'm out. That's not okay. The Bible commends those who investigate its claims. The Bible commends those who investigate its claims. Here's a picture of some of the apologetic series as we've done before. Uh, find Your Voice, Discussing Cultural Issues with Grace and Truth. We talked about the sanctity of life, abortion. We talked about God and government, Black Lives Matter. We talked about LGBTQ things. So, And if you're taking a trip at some point, you can go on our app or our website and find this series called Find Your Voice, and you can go through these sermons and learn how to discuss your faith on these topics. Uh, Conversation Killers is the one that we did more recently. I think it was last year. The toughest objections to our faith. In other words, if you're talking to someone about spiritual things and they say, I would never believe in a God who sends people to hell. Okay, the conversation's over unless you know what to say in that moment. 
And each sermon I shared was how to keep the conversation going when someone says something like, well, all religions basically teach the same thing. You need to know what to say right there or the conversation dies. So check out those if you've got time this summer. I like what Daryl Bach says. The Christian life is an examined life where one employs the scripture like an x-ray to ascertain the nature of truth, of life, and of one's heart. So the Bible commends those who investigate its claims. And finally, we must expect and endure opposition to our faith. We must expect and endure opposition to our faith. It says in verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. Now they brought the mob to Berea, agitating and stirring up the crowds there. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. They're going to kill him. Sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is wonderful. Now Paul ends up 300 miles away by sea, all alone in Athens, the intellectual capital of the Greek world. That's going to be an awesome sermon coming. This is where the thought of the ancient world was cooked and baked and, and disseminated throughout the whole Roman Empire, and Paul is there. But we're going to actually close this sermon as we transition into communion here. We're going to close this sermon by talking about how communion helps us to deal with and cope with the pain and the suffering that we will face in this life.